Hey everybody, welcome to Pochmancier. This week is chapter 8. I'm so excited that this thing is just rolling along. Really quickly before we get started, I've just got a couple of announcements. Number one, this is being recorded in my brand new studio in beautiful Fairhaven, Washington, south end of Bellingham there. Uh, so the audio quality might be a little different as we sort of work on getting soundproofing set up and everything in here, but that's really exciting. Uh, speaking of exciting things, there is a Patreon now if you'd like to directly support this specific podcast and sort of future writing projects as they get released in the same format. You can go find out more about that by going to patreon.com slash strangelywritesbooks. And last but not least, I just wanted to give you all a quick heads up. This chapter is the one that in my mind and during editing and everything I was thinking of as the really scary chapter. So if you've got some younger listeners with you, maybe give this a listen before you show it to them just in case. Uh, But without further ado, let's get to it. Boschmansier, a novel by Strangely Duesberg, read by the author. Chapter 8 of Dubious Goods. So what then of our tattered prophet? last seen taking his regular drink, sitting in the same pub so recently vacated by our new lovers and their betweeted friend. Where does the knight find him? In every city, as you already know, there is a second city, a city under the city. There are shadow economies, black markets, and the things not describable as either. There are people in these worlds, Folk who, for reasons almost too arcane to comprehend, continue to exist, to live, and often to thrive. There are those you see pushing stolen trolleys piled high with collected cans or other metals bound for scrapyards in faraway districts. Men with suspicious watches hung inside coats or hawking designer handbags for too good to be true prices. The tattered prophet is such a man, a talented man skilled in ways often not valued. Though a shadow of his former self, he is still often underestimated. The tattered prophet is named Theosophus O'Corvi, though few know him by this moniker. The name is far too grand for such as he, which is why he usually tells folks to dub him simply Theo. Much like Slice, he is far older than he appears, or even should be, given the life he has led. Though he seems a pauper and never has any money to speak of, Theo is actually quite wealthy. He long ago set himself up for life by taking advantage of a talent, one so refined as to border on the supernatural. Theo can cheat. Cards, dice, guns, the game is inconsequential. Theo knows them all and how to beat them. Though winning is just the beginning. Once... Long ago, he was a very respected young actor on the rise. Those days are gone now, but the same skills still serve him well in passing off his tremendous luck. It is, after all, not enough to con someone into letting you win. You must also convince them that your fortune is genuine. When Theo left the world of theater, he spent the next decade traveling the world, learning to control the outcome of games of chance. Sometimes he misses the life of an actor, but then he remembers the terrible fire, the screams of the burning. The deaths of his comrades in theater had been almost enough to destroy him, but it was nothing compared to his final night of gambling. Once, the games of chance were a welcome refuge from a past full of tragedy and shame. In the end, though, they betrayed him in far crueler ways. 
That last trip among those who bet had left him the staggering shell of a man, one who has skulked along the edges of our story, at least so far. Some years ago, Theo managed to get himself into a series of backroom games. He played with folks so evil in their pleasures as to seem inhuman. These men were not to be trifled with, violent, greedy, and bored. Of all these, boredom is the most insidious. It fills the heart with desire for something different, something unusual. They had filled their veins, killed at a whim, and taken their pleasure a hundred ways with as many consorts. And still they wished for more. For such men, it is not much of a step to seek their amusements in the dark, and even the arcane. No longer content to wager mere valuables or assets, they risked their very souls, pledging blood oaths to ancient demons, cutting off fingers in the service of dark gods, or drinking one another's blood in horrific shows of dominance. Theo had heard of this secretive club from a chance conversation with another professional gambler. It was run, the man said, by a woman known only as the Lady in Green. The man had, drunkenly, confided his fear of the place. Though wary, he also harbored a secret desire to attend and try his hand at their games. These contests were rumored to be so dangerous and laced with black magic as to make some participants go insane. Late into that night, Theo and his drinking companion swore to each other that they would find this house of dark distractions and play its games. The next morning, Theo awoke in an alley, hungover to high heaven. In his pocket, he found a drunkenly scrawled tatter of paper recounting the details of their conversation. He was also now in possession of a phone number with which to contact this lady in green. There was no sign of his companion, though this sort of thing was not so odd for Theo in those days. Scarce a week later, Theo finds himself wearing his best suit, standing outside a plain green door. In his hand, he holds a briefcase full of every bit of money he'd been able to raise. Through means both honest and criminal, he had begged, borrowed, conned, stolen, coerced, and in one case stooped to labor for the money he plans to risk. Theo knocks on the door. Even before there has been time for anyone to come to answer it, it opens. Standing in the doorway, dressed in impeccable waiter's garb, is an enormous man. Hello, says Theo, cheerful. I'm here to play. The man nods curtly and stands aside, gesturing in an almost welcoming manner with his other hand. Beyond the door is a large hallway, cavernous and well-appointed. Theo is ushered to a comfortable seat. The briefcase is removed to another room, the contents tallied and exchanged for simple black chips. Theo knows from his conversations with his colleague that this is how things are done here. The dark tokens are the only currency allowed within the establishment. The gaming room is cavernous, a vaulted space like the nave of a church, although possessed of much the opposite purpose. Comfortable chairs are set up in key locations surrounding tables or facing podiums. Along one wall is a very well-stocked bar. Four bartenders stand at attention behind it, their uniforms matching the hulking waiters. These glide all about the room, making last-minute arrangements and carrying trays of mincemeats. The guests are ushered to some two dozen seats surrounding a small raised dais. As they take their places, the waiters line up in two lines to either side of the seats, radiating out from the dais in a chevron of green uniforms pressed to perfection. 
From somewhere in the vast room, a small chamber orchestra begins to play, something that sounds at once classical and far too modern. A door opens near the dais, and the lady in green walks slowly out. The outfit is impeccable. Her gown a perfect balancing act along the razor's edge between fashion and functionality. It would not be a stretch to call her beautiful, and yet there is something uncannily wrong about her. Her air of dark mystery gives Theo a sinking feeling, as if in an elevator, going too fast. Despite her beauty, she is not desirable. Instead, she is off-putting, frightening even. When she smiles, it is not the face of kindness, but the rictus of some deep-sea predator. She claps her hands, a sharp report in the large room, and the music stops, echoing for just a moment. When she speaks, her voice is far too resonant for her willowy form, seeming to come from the walls and pillars around them. Ladies and gentlemen, she says, Welcome to Madame Emeralds. I am she, your hostess, your compere, your guide to this evening of forbidden delights and dark sensations. We will entertain your minds, excite your senses, and possibly ensnare your very soul. This last pronouncement prompts laughs from some of the guests. Theo pegs them for regulars to these evenings of twisted entertainments. He makes a mental note to watch them for cues. The rest, then, must be first-timers. He joins them in polite nods and smiles, not wishing to look bothered by this humor. So now to the contracts. The hostess snaps her fingers. A waiter for each guest walks forward holding a small tray, a quill pen and ink perched upon it. Beside the quill pen lies a sheet of old-fashioned paper and a small metal pin topped with a gemstone. Theo's is a ruby. The guests are instructed to take the trays, read the contract, and sign it in the classic fashion of ink and blood. Theo is not sure what this means, but soon finds he can watch his neighbor for the procedure. Take as much time as you need, Emerald says in a voice that is perhaps meant to sound warm. When you are done, signal your waiter and they will take the tray. You may help yourself to refreshments from the bar while you wait for the others to finish. One last thing. This is your last chance to turn back. Should you leave now, no harm shall come to you, and you may go on your way unsullied, though leave in the knowledge that you will never be allowed back into this hall. Now then, let us begin. With a clap of her hands, the music begins again, and she walks down the opposite side of the stage and seats herself at the bar. A drink is already waiting for her. Many of the regulars sign quickly, without even reading the contracts. Each one pricks their hand with a pin and squeezes a few drops of blood onto the contract in no particular place. There is a napkin on the tray as well, this to be pressed into the palm after the blood has been spilt. The waiters glide over to take the trays when the guests are finished. They disappear with the signed contracts through the same door the hostess emerged from. The quiet of the room is soon filled by loud, jocular voices from the bar. The regulars are already speculating what entertainments the night will hold. Theo reads the contract with mounting horror. There are the standard non-disclosure clauses, various bits about putative measures for revealing the secrets of this organization, acknowledgement that Madame E. 
et al. will not be held accountable for any injuries or death which may occur, and so on. As things go on, however, the demands become stranger. The requirement to surrender a tooth in the event that a bollard shard is found in one's right shoe stands out as peculiar. So too the prohibitions on goat stones, buttons, and tarot bones, the punishment for which seems to be amnesia. Theo mouths this word silently to himself, wondering at the odd spelling. Amnesia. Amnesia. At the end of the contract are the words, If you should leave these games before their appointed time of ending, your assets and soul, such as they are, shall be forfeit and become the property of Madame E. at LLLC. Theo hesitates only the briefest moment before taking up the quill and signing his name. He has always longed for this kind of chance, for the risk of impossible games with impossible treasures to be won. Should he walk away now, he will forever be a coward. As he moves toward the bar, considering what he has done, he realizes he has a swagger in his step. Theo has just wagered his immortal soul against his own abilities to cheat, push, and otherwise influence games of chance. A deal with the devil indeed, he thinks to himself as he orders a drink. Once all have signed, they drift about for several hours, playing small games at the various tables. Theo participates in as many as he can. He loses what he must to seem a sporting man, but he knows the greater contests are yet to come. Many of their games prove to be ones he is familiar with. Poker, Jack in the Black, and the 21 Hits. But some are new. There is a race with rats, their tails tied to lit packets of burning magnesium. Elsewhere, he encounters a line of boxes with holes in one side. The Ben Jez, some of his fellow gamers call them. Contestants take turns putting their hands into the boxes, their faces contorted with agony, while others wager on their stamina. When their hands come out, they are unscathed. By far, Theo's favorite amusement is a card table presided over by a veiled woman. She deals not the standard cards, but those of the Marseille. These are the cards of death. The game is a simple one. When a card is dealt, the player must read their own fortune in it. Honestly, should they lie or lack the vision to discern the truth, they lose. After a short bit of observation, Theo detects the woman's subtle manipulations of the cards. He gamely joins the table and reads all the cards with a verve, failing to notice how much this seems to unnerve his companions. He leaves the cards of death when the great wheel is brought out into the room. The huge disc is mounted flat on a platform such that it can be surrounded on all sides and spun from almost any direction. Along one edge, an ornate arrow serves to indicate which section of the wheel has been chosen by a random push. The wheel is divided into hundreds of such whisper-thin sections with words written in them. He can read but a few from where he stands. Double back and triple payout have obvious meanings, though drop of blood and favored memory give him pause. Dark of mind, perhaps, but not altogether too dangerous, he reasons. He puts down a few of his chips on the little pad next to the great wheel and gives it a mighty spin. The wheel is a blur. Several of those around him applaud appreciatively. When at last it comes to rest, the presenter of the game, a slip of a man with bright red hair, reads the words. Memory theft! Those gathered clap and nod, some hooting with excited laughter. Theo is instructed to choose one of his fellow wheel spinners. He does so at random not sure what should influence his choice. 
The man stiffens for a moment. Almost at once, Theo feels a coldness in the back of his head, and a memory springs to mind. He is stabbing his father, over and over again, laughing as the blood flows. Theo shakes his head to clear it. This is not his memory. When he realizes what has happened, it is too late. One of the men beside him claps him on the back as though he has just taken a shot of an especially putrid alcohol. Hilarious, right? Now his most treasured memory is yours. Theo moves away from the wheel and orders another drink. As the evening gets into full swing, he notices that in addition to the regular black chips, many of the gamblers have a single bright red chip. He joins a pair of the calmer, more seasoned-looking contestants and shares around with them, eventually turning the conversation to the bright red chips. Oh, this says one man, a mouthful of gold teeth and one eye cloudy from a fight years before Theo was born. Ha! Soul chips! See, we can wager our immortal souls on any given game, if the pot gets big enough, his toadish companion adds. You win one of these, you've got quite a hold over the loser. Make him do just about anything to get it back. Theo grins. A monstrous shark face he knows puts the gamblers at ease. He is just one of them, after all. He does a little coin vanishing trick with one of his black chips, and then seems to think of something. He asks where he might get one, his manner casual as a copper kettle. The two men exchange a conspiratorial glance with each other, seeming to come to an agreement almost at once. Gold Teeth repeats Theo's trick in reverse, making the coin appear. He holds it up. His other hand seems to hold something small. Like this, he mimes, pricking the palm of his hand with the coin in it, as they did earlier with the contracts. The black chip is then gripped in a tight fist. When he opens his fingers, the chip is now red. Theo gives the man a slow clap for the trick and raises his glass before leaving to seek a private corner to catch his breath. He is soon back out among the tables, red chip in hand, working his charms on the 21 hits. He even manages to claim another man's soul chip. Theo recognizes the shift in the evening's entertainments when two wiry children are brought out. These glassy-eyed combatants, he gathers, will be placed in a pit and ordered to fight to the death. Theo, like all the rest, pokes and prods them, wondering aloud at their strength. He was not prepared for this. Perhaps fighting dogs or some other animal. But children? For a moment, he allows the thought of trying to abstain or quit. But how is he to leave? If he walked away from this game, they would know he was not one of them. Exposed as an interloper, he might find himself on the receiving end of their cruel amusements. In the eventuality that a dogfight had been planned, Theo has an option. He always has an option. A small amount of a deadly toxin can be released from a secret compartment in a ring he wears. The poison is almost impossible to detect and will not act for some five minutes. It generally gives his preferred victor the edge when they need to beat his chosen loser. Reasoning that the contest will happen regardless of what he does, he uses his contingency. Theo knew such things were possible, but had hoped he would not have to face them. Sickened after placing his bet, he orders another stiff drink as the staff prepare for the contest. He wonders to himself if he will even survive this place. The fight is as short as it is brutal. It begins not a moment too soon, 
as Theo sees the first signs of poisoning in the child he had picked to be the loser. Both combatants must have been starved, tortured, something. The crowd cheers as the children rush at each other without hesitation, biting, tearing, kicking. There is no art to the fighting. None of the balladic grace polite society has learned to value in a fighter. This is sheer brutality. It ends with the victor pushing a fist through the torn skin of the loser's chest, already tattered from several broken ribs where blows had landed. The panting wretch finds the heart of the loser and rips it out to hold it aloft. Everyone applauds. Some even cheer. Though there are many losers, the consensus around the room is that they have been given a most enjoyable show. Theo realizes he is sitting next to Goldteeth's companion. The oily-haired man informs him that this was much better than last time. They had gotten so little sport from the rabid bear and the old man. Afterward, the winning child is covered with blood and bits of bone. Its knuckles are bleeding, fingernails torn and hanging loose. The waif is led away by one of the massive waders, dead-eyed and docile as a lamb. Theo shudders. His poison had been a mercy, he tells himself. He saved the other one from worse pains and torments. Even as he tries to feed himself these platitudes, he chokes on his own hypocrisy. He wants to be sick, to run, to leave, but he knows he cannot. He has signed away his soul. He wonders what it feels like to burn for eternity. When at last it is time for the final contest, Theo finds himself relaxing. It will soon be over. His relief is to be short-lived. A large thing, well over eight feet tall and draped in cloth, is wheeled out of a back room on a sturdy platform. When it has been placed in the center of the room, the wheels are locked in place, the cloth removed. It is a door. The portal is thick, oaken, with hinges wrought from heavy iron. It hangs between a pair of stout wooden pillars, with a heavy mantle across the top of them. The woman in green makes a great show of unveiling the door. After overseeing the lighting of a pair of lanterns which sit to either side of it, she finally unlocks it with a key which she carries on a chain around her neck. Inside the door is darkness. Theo and several of the other men who have not visited this particular establishment before gasp in surprise. All that has come before seems like mere parlor tricks compared to this darkness. One man walks around the back of the door frame, completing a slow, deliberate circle. He stares with his mouth agape, eyes skeptical. His expression turns from befuddled to horrified as he makes a second circuit. Nobody in the room allows even the slightest reaction as the man bends double and begins to vomit. Straightening up, he wipes his face with a handkerchief, begging everyone's pardon. He asks if he might leave. It is, after all, getting quite late and he has business to attend to. He nods to everyone and begins to walk toward the doors. He makes it about 20 feet before he finds his way blocked by the proprietress. You will stay till the end of the games, or your life is forfeit. Have you forgotten this? She says. The man is angry. Does she not know who he is? He is a powerful man. With a snarled curse, he tries to push her out of the way. She does not budge easily. Out of the darkness on noiseless feet looms a pair of the massive waders. With nary a sound, they take hold of the man's wrists and ankles. He thrashes violently as they carry him off toward a side room. Theo realizes he recognizes the man, though his identity is concealed, muddled behind a false beard. 
It is his drinking companion of the week before. He too has found his way to this place of demonic mischief. Somehow, since being grabbed, his disguise has diminished. As he has returned to his usual size and countenance, his gaze lands upon Theo. In that instant of linkage between them, he pleads with his eyes for intercession. Theo turns away, pretending to be troubled by a stray fiber on his jacket. As he passes from sight, the man's protestations become muffled. Perhaps he has been gagged. They cease to be heard altogether when the door to the room is closed again. The hostess turns to the remaining players. I apologize for the interruption. Our rules are very strict here for a reason. Perhaps he shall provide more sport for us on another night. Several of the guests respond to the jape with knowing laughter. Others betray only a mild amusement. Most show no emotion at all. Meanwhile, the doorway continues to stand. A portal. To what? Theo wonders. To where? All the lights in the room go out, save for a spotlight on the platform and one pointing at a doorway near the back of the room. A pair of figures walk out and proceed along the pale green carpet that ends in the short steps up to the dais. It is the child, so recent of the pit, being led by one of the gargantuan waiters. Theo can see that it is still covered in what's left of the vanquished opponent. He chokes back a sob, realizing that this wretched thing could barely be called a child anymore. Any hope of innocence is now gone in the haze of what has just happened. The child's shell is deposited on the threshold of the doorway. Another waiter brings the lady in green a box, which she opens. She draws out a small stuffed animal. The toy is battered, ravaged, unrecognizable as the friendly rabbit it may once have been. The reaction is immediate. Something unlocks inside and opens. The little face, which until now has been a mask of indifference, changes to one holding a glimmer of hope. The woman walks forward holding out the rabbit to the child, who reaches back to her in turn. Just before the small hand can grasp the toy, she cocks back her arm and tosses it with all her might through the doorway into the darkness beyond. The child's lip quivers, and tears begin to fall down the dirty face. It stares at her for a moment, expression pleading. She takes a deep breath, turning to regard her audience with a raised eyebrow. Her expression is that of a master of tension, holding the moment. Very well, she says. You may play with your toy. There is no hesitation. The child dashes across the threshold toward the toy, just visible in the inky darkness beyond. The rabbit is scooped up and cradled. A shadow passes between the child and the doorway. The waif freezes, hearing something. The audience waits on tenterhooks. Then the child is running for dear life back toward the door. Just before reaching the threshold, it stops, eyes wide. Long, sinewy tentacles of darkness reach out to wrap around the waif. It is lifted from sight above the doorway. For a moment, there is silence. And then, a distant scream. The little rabbit falls back into view, covered in something dark and wet. The crowd breaks out in polite applause, as if at some soporific sporting match. Even after everything he has seen, all he has done, the wheel, the cards of death, poisoning the child, this sickens Theo more than anything else. At least the match in the pit had been violent combat. On some primal level it made sense, but this, 
this doorway. It seems beyond good or evil. It is darkness, and Theo can tell. It is hungry. For our final entertainment of the night, Emerald announces after silencing the applause. A test of will, of courage, of stamina. I give you the last door. Again, the polite applause ripples through the room. Again, it is silenced. Legend holds the portal is an exit from our world, our universe, out into the nothing that lies beyond, between. Yes, my dears, even beyond heaven and hell to blissful nothing. So, why not take this exit and risk what lies ahead? Because something lurks out there in the black beyond all things. It desires nothing more than to feed on all things. Her voice trails away, and for the first time in the evening her manner betrays the faintest hint of some strong emotion. Theo cannot begin to guess which one, however, and almost before it can be noticed, the moment passes. These are the rules. One among you will volunteer to stand at the portal for at least five minutes. At this, she draws a cloth away from a large, ornate hourglass, full of a curious dark, gray-black sand. As long as one does not cross the threshold into the darkness beyond, they remain safe, free to leave. However, simply standing next to the portal is not all that must be endured. It is said that from within, voices will whisper, promising anything, threatening everything. So, who among you shall be our player, our champion? This is a game Theo has no ability to rig. There is no possible way to circumvent the conditions in his favor save one. Much like the poison in his ring, Theo has a small vial of mild sedative secreted in a gap between two of his teeth. This is vouchsafed to calm himself during a difficult hand of poker or similar contest. He has no way to give it to any other contestant, but he can administer it to himself easily enough. Already feeling the despair of the heinous acts he has been party to this night, the idea of risking his own life seems not undesirable. Before he can second-guess himself, Theo is on his feet, striding forward, shouting, I'll do it, let me do. Another voice has risen to challenge his own. A second man has also leapt to his feet. The crowd is in an uproar, shouting encouragement, advice, and taunts at the two volunteers. Thinking fast, Theo moves to intercept the man, lashing out with an elbow and a leg. He feels the elbow connect with a satisfying thwack against the man's head, and his leg completes the attack, sweeping the man off his feet to crash to the floor, winded and dazed. During the scuffle, he manages to work the drug free and inhale the powder into his sinuses. His cough is covered by the cheers of the audience. Theo alone makes it to the front of the room to stand face to face with Emerald. Impressive, she says, once again raising her eyebrow. She takes his hand, whirls him around, and drags him down into a bow. The audience this time is a bit less polite, filled once again with the rough sporting energy seen earlier in the evening. Theo straightens up as quick as he can and pulls his hand away from the woman's. Her grip is light, but feels like it could burn him. From cold or heat, he cannot tell. Even after his fingers are no longer in hers, 
he still feels the lingering presence of her touch. He fights the urge to wipe his hand on his shirt. You understand the rules? The woman asks, looking him up and down. He nods. Then let us begin. She laughs. The sound, a haunting parody of coquettish glee, and reaches up to cover his eyes. The hostess calls for wagers. Theo can hear rustling and muffled discussions. When silence returns, she uncovers his eyes. Each member of the crowd holds a sealed envelope, containing their wager, no doubt. Theo reaches into his pocket and pulls out his soul chip, as well as the one he claimed earlier. He holds them out to the woman. These should suffice as my wager. If she is surprised he has bet so much upon himself, she does not betray it. She takes the chips and ushers him toward the portal with the slightest suggestion of a nod. He does not question what he has just done. In for a penny, when in Rome, all of that. As Theo approaches the void, he can feel the sedative beginning to wash over him, with calming pulses in time to his heartbeat. To buy a bit more time, he pauses and makes a great show of stroking his chin, deep in thought. There is one other thing he can choose. He bows again to the crowd, dusts off his actor's voice, and addresses them. Now then, I've got to choose which side to give it, eh? The face or the ass? This brings less general reaction than he would have expected, though Gold Teeth booms with laughter at his joke. The lady in green seems annoyed. She waves her hand in a sort of get-on-with-it gesture. Theo grins at her and finishes his calculations, deciding to stand with his back to the doorway. He reasons it is better to not be staring into that abyss. He knows the depths of his own imagination, at least, and it holds no surprises for him. As soon as his feet are planted, he realizes how wrong he is. Like a rising frigid water, the feeling of the emptiness at his back trickles toward him. It crawls up his pant legs and into his heart, an icy cold that is at once familiar and wholly alien. Theo feels as though his jacket is too tight. He cannot get a full and deep breath. He wills himself to steady. This is just like stage fright. Control the mind and the body will follow. For a while, he feels he is doing well. There is something there, something stalking him, threatening to devour him, but he also knows that it is on the other side, not here with him. Somehow he knows it cannot cross the threshold, so he allows his mind to wander, to think of other things. He spends more than two minutes imagining he is standing over a stove, poaching eggs, watching them change from loose masses to their more solid state, moving the water around them in gentle circles. The sedative is fully upon him now. This is easy. Some part of his mind resolves to eat a dozen eggs for breakfast tomorrow. Just eggs, nothing else. Theo sinks ever deeper into his own mind, focusing on the details of the eggs, their taste, the texture on his tongue. Something runs up his back. It is so very cold, but small, like a fingertip or a claw. A puffing of cold from behind him resolves itself into the breathing of some horrible creature, a being made of ice and hatred. The first probing claw is joined by a second, and then a third, then more and more until it seems every part of his back is being scalded by the cold touch of the thing from the darkness. From a great distance, he equates the feeling to that of Emerald's fingers. 
All thoughts of controlling his fear, of mastering his trepidation, fly from him to be replaced by stark terror, and yet he manages to remain standing. A tiny spark of rage has illuminated within him. No, he thinks. This is not how it happens. This is stupid. The cold touches seem to withdraw, perhaps frightened of the heat of his fury. A moment later they return, stronger. No longer content with just his back, he can feel them slowly extending their range, around his sides, over his arms, enveloping his legs. It feels as though he is being lowered very, very slowly into ice-cold water. With a start, he realizes the pain and cold and empty is gone. It has been replaced by a pleasant, warm feeling. No, not warm. Hot. Very hot. But there is also a cool breeze on the back of his neck. He feels as though he is standing by the seaside on an idyllic summer day. And then he can smell the surf. From somewhere behind him, he can make out the sound of crashing waves. Something that might be the cackling of seabirds. And then a voice at his ear. She is there. Beyond hope, she has found her way back to him. No longer is she lost in the fire of a destroyed theater. Theo, she whispers, I found you. He knows, in his heart, that it is her. There is no question. Somehow, in all the vastness of existence, of possibility, they are the exception. A love and a will strong enough to transcend life and death. She has fought her way back to him. He can feel her arms reaching past his face, sliding down his chest, embracing him from behind. Her head is resting on his shoulder. No, he thinks. This is not you. You are gone. This cannot be you. The touch against him instantly becomes white hot. The mirror pain to the cold so recently gone from him. There is a sound that he knows not in his ears or even his mind, but by the pain in his temples and his teeth. Something is screaming at him in rage. The pain redoubles, and doubles again, once more slowly crawling over him to submerge him in a dark pool. This time, though, the pool is full of fire. And then, the pain in his body is gone again. This time, standing before him, he sees the two children, the one he poisoned, and the other one. They look at him, small eyes accusing. You poisoned me, says the first, made me a toy in your games. Theo shakes his head. No, it wasn't like that, he wants to shout. Desperate to explain that his own life had been in danger and he had only done what he needed in order to survive. And through your actions, I was sentenced to a far worse fate, says the other child. Hell would have been paradise compared to this. I am no more, shall be no more. Even an eternity of torture amongst the brimstone forests of the underworld is a better fate. He cannot bear to look at them, but he cannot look away either. This is too much. He had no way of knowing that this portal was coming, and yet some part of him had known, had been all right with it. You are the darkest of those gathered whispers a voice like the gentlest breeze through a field of wildflowers. A quiet voice, one he knows has always been within him. The weary feelings begin to build. He is tired, tired of sorrow, tired of pain. Everything has gone from him. She is gone. He knows it can all end. 
All he has to do is stop fighting to stay up and lay back into the embrace of the last door. He lets out the breath he does not realize he has been holding. It is slow, with savor. His last breath before. The last door. Just let it out, he thinks. Lay back. It's time to go gently into that quiet. No! For the first time since the ordeal began, Theo finds his voice. At the same moment, he hears, or thinks he hears, a sound. It is like bells dropping down a staircase. It seems to call him away from the door. Something speaks deep within him. He must move, and he must move now. He goes to take a step forward. He is certain it has been long enough. He must have won. With a groan, he manages to move one of his feet and lean his body forward. The two children disappear, along with the whispering voice and the sense of the last door at his back. As he opens his eyes, he fears he has made a grave error in the amount of time that has passed. But there is no way to be certain. The hourglass has fallen, now little more than shards of broken glass and cascading sand. Nobody claps. Nobody cheers. All stare at him in disbelief. There is anger on some of the faces, sorrow on others. Most seem to be feeling a kind of fear Theo has never seen before, as though they have all seen the darkest vision of their own fates. Nobody moves, save for the woman in green, who has begun weeping as she tries to collect the scattered sand all over the floor. Though Theo had no way of knowing it at the time, he had just accomplished the impossible. It was only through chance that I came upon a witness to that fatal night, when darkness descended upon those rooms of green. I found him while investigating a submarine lost up a river. His tale was harrowing, though little help in locating the craft in question. It seemed, this man informed me, that no one had ever survived the challenge of the last door. Nobody was supposed to. Instead, it was intended as a betting pool for the other patrons. They would try to guess how long a contestant would last before succumbing to the temptation of the void. Most wagers factored on a scale of seconds, a minute at the outside. In his infiltration of this place, Theo had not been as clever as he had thought himself. Unbeknownst to our unfortunate gambler, he had been fulfilling a crucial role in the regular activities of the club. It was common for the club to relax its policies of absolute secrecy in order to attract such as him to their hall. Once arrived, these new participants would be encouraged to participate as though they'd been accepted, all the while being subtly prepped for the last door. Their passing was seldom given much thought. The event was, on the whole, a short one. Long before Theo's trial, a woman had lasted close to two minutes, Denizens of the club were still talking about her almost a century later. Given such a history, it is understandable that Theo's performance caused such consternation and fear. He had stood for more than a quarter of an hour with his back to the darkness. Not only had he resisted falling in, but nothing had come for him either. This is why the hourglass had been smashed. Madame Emerald had turned it once, and then twice, with ever more shaky hands. By the third turn, she was shaking so much that she dropped it. 
This loud crash was the distant sound which had broken Theo from the pull of the doorway. Theo doesn't know it yet, but he is about to become a very wealthy man, since he is the only one who is betting upon himself. At such long odds, he has, in essence, cleaned the lot of them out. The stillness of the moment after the hourglass smashes and he steps forward again is obliterated in the uproar which follows. Some of the guests cry foul, blaming a house cheat. Others bemoan their lost stakes, the volume of their voices betraying their unease. Still others are weeping, from horror, shame, or loss. Theo cannot tell. Most are making for the exits. Theo realizes with alarm that several are headed toward him, dark purpose intent on their faces. Before the uproar can become a full-fledged panic, the huge staff members glide in. They speak to the guests in quiet voices, restraining those who will not listen. In the confusion, Theo realizes the lady in green is staring directly at him, her hands still grasping at the sand. You have destroyed this house. Your vile cheating will not go unpunished. Her gaze leaves him as she continues to gather up the sand from the hourglass, muttering curses as she paws at the pile, her fingers turning bloody from the glass. Her hands full, her urgency reaches a new level as she begins to eat the dark substance, forcing herself to swallow it. She even begins to take deep, gulping breaths, doubtless pulling great quantities of the sand into her lungs as if seeking some strange high. She is still weeping, but her motions now have purpose, as if she knows this is her only salvation. The guests subdued, one of the waiters approaches the woman in green. A look of concern is plain upon the face which had seemed so immobile just moments before. The waiter places a gentle hand on her shoulder and receives a nasty slash with a shard of glass and a hissed curse for the effort. The warning is heeded and the giant lumbers away to a safe vantage point. Emerald bends down, almost flat upon the floor, and begins to lick it. She manages to lap up the last of the sand and then collapses, choking and gurgling. After one final heave, the lady in green stops twitching and lies still. Seeing her immobility, the waiter gains confidence and moves forward to tap her lightly. When she does not stir, the waiter checks her pulse. The massive head sinks down in resignation. She is dead. The staff are escorting the guests out. Several are still trying to argue about their money, but most have been overtaken by a somber mood. Just before he walks out the doorway, terror coursing through his veins, Theo turns to look back into the room one last time. The woman in green twitches and then rolls over and climbs to her feet. She turns to look at him, smiling. Her eyes are black like the sand. Dead eyes. She explodes, as though turned to a reddish mist by some trick of the light. But it is no trick. A brief haze hangs in the air and then it too is gone. The enormity of his recent ordeal now becomes plain to him. Theo had played all their games that night. Though he had won the final impossible wager, it had cost him his soul. He is led to a small room and asked to provide information on a card. A diminutive man in an ill-fitting suit is talking to him. A lawyer? He is being reminded of his contract, the things he agreed to in it. The information he is providing will be the receiving method for his payment, which is, the small man produces a slip of paper, extensive. The man slides the paper over to Theo. It has a number on it, a number with seven zeros after it. Theo feels sick.
As he is exiting, another competitor stops to congratulate him on his impressive performance. Was he afraid? Did he know nobody's ever done it before? Would he care to come out for a nightcap? Wasn't he glad nothing had pulled him into the portal? Theo often wishes something had come for him. And so it is that every night Theo stops at the same pub for a drink. A drink no one has ever seen him pay for. Though this is confusing to every customer who cares to take notice, it makes perfect sense to the bar's manager and her small staff. Theo owns the bar. He pays their wages and is very generous with bonuses and medical bills for anyone who needs help. The drink is always served on a napkin with a single number written on it. This is the pub's bottom line. Once, two years passed after a small fire in the kitchen and a robbery, the bottom line had dropped below zero. Faced with the negative numbers, Theo had said nothing, just finished his drink as usual. The following day, he had returned with a briefcase full of cash and instructed the manager to not let it happen again. She saw to it that it did not. To the best of the manager's knowledge, Theo has never touched a penny of the bar's earnings, preferring to live an odd, monastic existence. Theo's nightly ramblings always come to their end at a small tunnel hidden behind a pile of rubbish in an alley. At the far end of the tunnel lies a sort of apartment where he resides. There is running water, a few fitful electric lights, and a small cot for sleeping. Spare comforts. Naturally, Theo also owns the building, though he lives in it like a squatter. The only items which betray the vast wealth he possesses are several large bookcases and a small object the size of a football sitting on a table, covered in a velvet cloth. The books are, on the whole, quite rare, and most of them are very old. Home is still a far way off, though, and a ritual must be completed. The neighborhood must be scouted for signs of trouble. His encounter outside the old theater today, with sounds long thought in the past, has made him wary. As he walks home, he realizes he is near the very same alley he had stopped in that afternoon. His pace slows. Something is moving in the murk. But what? Theo sinks into the shadows behind some bins, determined to see what's going on. There are people in the alley. A pair of ruffians, and no mistake. These two are conducting the shadiest business imaginable and dress the part. Tatty overcoats draped over moth-eaten tweed and shoes which last saw polish before phones could fit in pockets. Dirty fingernails, hair slicked with too much brill and teeth to make a zombie wince. Cigarettes bounce, cradled in lips used to talking out of both sides at once. The woman, possessed of eyebrows that look like nothing so much as two dancing caterpillars, is speaking. Animated. I don't see why you're not interested. This is a perfectly good jetpack. Pitch your tilt all the fixings. To be sure, to be sure. But then of course there's the question of provenance. Her companion, gloves fingerless from wear, not fashion, responds, scratching at a stubbly chin. Provenance? Provenance? Becoming almost courtly. I'm offering you a Godsby forsaken device that you strap to your back, which allows you to fly like a bird, like a plane, like a hell for leather superhero, and you're sitting here asking me where the damn thing came from. Yes. I'll tell you where it came from. I have no idea where it came from. I got it from Adlands as a trade. What did you trade for it then? What did I trade for it? 
So now not only are you casting aspersions on the goods, which I continue to give you magnificent deals on, but now you've also insinuating that you've got some sort of right to know my comings and goings. Say I do. Say you don't, my friend. We've had a very specific type of business, you and I, trading in the things what nobody else thinks what exists. Now then, I've got this jetpack if you'd like it, and you've got what I can plainly see and won't be cast in shade upon is an unicorn's horn. It's a narwhal's tusk. Baker's dozen is 14 eggs. Who gives a fake? It's 13. Oh, is it now then? Suppose one falls on the floor. You've got to have a spare. That's why it's 13, because a dozen is 12. 12? Yeah, after them tribes. What's it again? Of some place, wearing the bedsheets. Togas? No, but that might be close. I can never keep it straight. That's what Adeline's so good for. Heavens bless! The caterpillars nearly kiss in a grand show of piety. Which heavens would those be, then? All of them, I should hope. A noise down the alley. A trash can jostles. A scree of papers wafts to the ground. The arguing pair turn suddenly toward the noise. Fists clench. A tusk becomes a club. They exchange a glance. Someone has been watching them. This must be dealt with. Slow as molasses, the woman reaches into the trunk of her car past the dubious jetpack and pulls out an ancient coach gun. With practiced slowness, the coach gun is cracked in half to reveal a pair of shells already nestled in the twin barrels. The caterpillars actually do touch now, a look of concern, as she nods the tiniest fraction. I'll cover you. Though a bit stiff with fear, they make their steady way down the alley toward the place where the sound came from. As they get closer, they begin to hear a noise. A quiet rushing, not unlike water flowing over pebbles. The almost gone memory of water from childhood. A little brook rushing through a copse of trees near home. The noise continues to grow, and now within it, a clicking. The minuscule ticks of a thousand tiny claws scratching on pavement. They arrive at an alcove, a back entrance for some building or other. The susurrus is coming from behind a pair of heavy double doors set in the back of the alcove. Silent as a nighttime cloud above a desert, the doors open, hinges so quiet as to defy the most skilled mechanic. A wave of mice comes pouring out, flowing like water over and around their feet before they can even tell what is happening. The pair are knocked backward, flailing only to land on the tiny horde. The mice reverse course, dragging them back through the doors which slam shut. A moment later, the screams begin, muffled by the heavy door. From the end of the alley, Theo watches, twisting with fear. He is chewing on his own hand to keep from crying out. Not again. Not now. He knows that whisper. Even in the dim light of the alley, he could see the sandy blackness where the eyes of the mice should have been. When the distant report of a shotgun sounds, he finds his feet, turns, and runs. Wow. So that is, I think, the longest chapter that this book has. Uh, that was 26 pages of manuscript, which is a lot. I thought about splitting this chapter into two chunks, but I didn't really know where I wanted to put the line. And I don't know, it, it just all sort of flowed together and that's how it got written. So that's how it is. I am very excited to announce that if you've been enjoying this podcast, you can now support it directly via Patreon. 
I uh, bit the bullet and set up a Patreon for the podcast. You can find it by going to patreon.com slash strangelywritesbooks. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, like Patreon or Pat-Re-On. <laughs> I hope all of you folks go check that out and that some of you become subscribers. I will always be putting this podcast out for free. It's important to me that art be accessible and that anyone can get at it and hear it and hopefully connect with my stuff because it's, you know, this is me and this is me trying to tell stories and share, you know, a bit of my heart with you. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to this podcast and for supporting it. Even just listening to it and maybe telling someone else about it counts as supporting it. So I hope that this finds you all well and uh, I will see you next week for chapter nine in which breakfast is cooked and a lunch is earned.